You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode. How are you doing, Hamish? How's uh, how's the lockdown treating you over <laughs> down in Melbourne? Man, I feel so sorry for all, everybody down in Melbourne. Mm. I, I bet a, a fair few of our listeners are probably in Melbourne as well. Yeah, it's... Um, um, how are you going? Yeah, it's okay. I mean, we're coming out of some restrictions starting tomorrow, so... Uh, but we, I mean, we still have significant restrictions on what we can do and can't do um, for the next yeah. week or so. And then we don't really know what's going to happen after that. It's a little bit week yeah. by week by week at the moment. But um, yeah, it's okay. Disappointed that I won't be able to have the uh, big birthday celebration that I was uh, intending on doing. But uh, that's mm. okay. Maybe I can save that for a few weeks time or something. Yeah, true. Happy birthday as well for tomorrow Thank or you. I guess uh, yesterday as <laughs> the podcast go- goes out. Yeah. Um, you're a big boy now. How old are you turning? Uh, 23. 23. 23. Yeah. There you go. That's crazy. <laughs> I, can, uh, I can finally get my full license. I'm not on my oh full my license gosh, yet. That's Brandon, Brandon finally. was uh, teasing me about this last time he came down, how, I'm, how I was still on my P's. <laughs> Well, I just forget. To be honest, I I just forget. I just assume that like my friends are just the same age as me. Mm. So, I just forget that you're a few years younger than I am. Um, Yeah. But yeah, you will be able to get your full license. Ho, ho. (laughs) Big deal. Yeah, huge deal. (laughs) Take those P plates off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's there's really Um, little change, is there? I think the only thing really is the the alcohol level, but that's like not really any different. But yeah. Do you still have to be at zero on your P's? Yes. You have to be zero. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Oh, the responsibility. All right. Well, we should probably talk about some investing stuff today. Yes. We've uh, <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about. A lot, of, a few different things. Some uh, inflation supply chain issues uh, with mm. a couple of businesses. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about in terms of tax for um, some American billionaires, but also Australians as well. We've got a couple yeah. of stories that kind of all came out around the same time that I think people will find very interesting. And uh, on top of that, a couple other stories. And then we've, of course, got a ton of Q&A uh, that we need to get through. So, we'll try and get to a couple of questions um, in today's podcast. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Should we get stuck into it? Yeah. So, today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, which is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio and it will allow you to keep track of all of the different types of gains. So, capital gains, dividends. If you have dividend reinvestment plans, so on index funds or even individual businesses, it will automatically do all of those calculations for you regardless of what type of dividend reinvestment plan it is. So, that is an absolute lifesaver, lifesaver, lifesaver for figuring out. I always mess up one word in this sponsorship segment. Yeah. So, it's impossible to get through it. Um, Well, it's hard when you just like, when you're just reading something. That's what I always stuff up when I'm reading the the news articles. I just trip trip myself up trying to read a news article. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Always reading ahead and, and not reading it properly. But yeah. Um, yeah. So, dividend reinvestment plans, currency gains, if you're buying 
buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies. And then you can also use it for when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite generates up to 10 different reports that can be used at tax time to easily work out things such as your capital gains, dividend income and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to ShareSite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, ShareSite.com forward slash young investors. So you can use that link to sign up to a free plan and use it for as long as you want. You can have up to 10 stocks in your portfolio portfolio. Uh, but you can also use that link to sign up to a paid plan and access more premium features. And if you use that link, you can get four months off a yearly subscription. So go check it out if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. Um, what should we what should we lead with today? Do you want to talk about um, the ATO's latest taxation statistics? Yeah. Yeah. This is probably the that thing sounds, I'm the most- that's, That sounds so dry. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the latest ATO <laughs> taxation statistics? <laughs> does sound really dry, but I'm actually so interested to see some of these numbers. I find this kind of thing really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not, there's not really one like headline for a news story, but that's why I chucked it in. It's, 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 it's exactly what you say mm. is that these numbers are just really interesting to have a look at because I had no idea. Um, so, what we're looking at is the Australian Taxation Office's latest taxation statistics that mm-hmm. are based from the tax returns of 14.7 million Australians uh, for 2018-2019. Right. So, um, these numbers do get delayed a little bit. I imagine there's just a lot of data to churn through. Uh, but this was released, I believe, two days ago or maybe, yeah, about two days ago. Um, so, let's start with the uh, out of 14.7 million Australians, what is the average taxable income? Well, the average taxable income was $62,549, right. which uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, but So, that was up 2.2%, I should say, from the previous year. So, we've been making more, I guess. But of course, with these numbers, averages can be a little bit misleading. Mm. Um, it's also very good to look at- It's a good idea to look at the median, so the middle number- and the median uh, average ta- or the median taxable income was $47,492 up 3.5% from the year before. Yeah. So that's does that does that surprise you? I, I actually thought that was a little bit low to be honest. I thought the average taxable income might be a little bit higher. Yeah, it's definitely lower than I expected. Um for sure. Uh definitely when looking at these numbers the median makes a lot more sense if you're trying to find out what the average Australian is earning because um, the basically, if you're taking an average, a mean, um, you're going to be capturing the few people who make a lot of money and adding yeah. that into the average, which is why the the mean was like 62,000 and then the median, the middle person was 47. So, that 47 number is a bit more re- reflective of of uh, what- The standard mo- person. Yeah, what yeah. A, a, the like what a lot of people make in Australia. But yeah, that number yeah. is really low. I think what, what minimum wage is what forty one thousand a year or forty two thousand a year. I think so. Right. It's only slightly above minimum wage, which is um, yeah, interesting. A lot lower than I thought. Yeah, yeah, that uh, it did did jump out at me. That is a, a lot lot lower than what I thought as well. Um, so let's move on into okay, average net tax. So what was the average amount of tax that um, Australians paid? It was nineteen thousand three hundred and forty four dollars. 
So that was up 0.4% from the year before. Um, and again, looking at the median, the median uh, net tax was uh, $11,024. So to be honest, I have no, I had no idea about this number and I don't even know how that fits in. Um, it seems to be about flat from, uh, from the prior year to 2018, 2019. Um, but there you go. Interesting about Average, on average, we pay about $20,000 of tax each mm. year. I guess that kind of makes sense that the tax was flat while the income went up slightly because there has been some tax cuts that have gone through for all income brackets, I believe, over the past That's few true. years. So, maybe yeah. that contributes to why the median income was up 3.5%, but the average tax was only up mm. 0.4%. Yep. Uh, average super account balance, $143,979. So, actually, this was interesting because that was up 6.8% for the year, for that year. Right. Um, so, that was quite a drastic jump. Uh, they also report- so I, I don't quite understand- these why these numbers are important because they also report the median super account balance which was 49,000 but does the median super account balance actually tell us anything because i mean of course it's going to be really low because the median person is probably just a young person that's still accumulating supers like in the middle or the towards the start of their career so i don't quite get why they report the median super account balance yeah, um, well, I mean, I would imagine it's similar to income in that in super accounts, you would have a small number of people at the very top who might have an outrageous amount of money in super, um, you know, maybe $30 million, fifty, maybe $100 million in super, so, a, a huge amount of money. Something crazy. Something yeah. crazy. And if you're just looking at the average of, and, and you're adding that into the average, then it's going to pull up the average significantly, whereas the median is more showing you the, the middle person. Um, yeah. and removes those outliers at the very top. So, the median is probably more reflective of the average person in Australia. Um, mm. If you're talking about like super accounts and you want to remove the, the ultra wealthy people who have a really high super account. Yeah. But I mean, does, does it really- does it really- does the median even matter? Because it's probably just telling us what, you know, some 28 or 30 year old dude living in Perth- has got in his super account. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Shouldn't should if you're talking about super super accounts, don't you want to look at how much people have in their account once they actually need it? So once they retire. I don't know. I feel like the reporting the median super account balance of all out of all 14.7 million Australian tax returns is just like a little bit uh just it doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what what percentage of um that that 14 million people are like under 30 or or above 50, for example. But yeah, you would want to look at it in brackets of age groups. And whenever we yeah. look at an article for super or income, they usually do that, right? They usually break up yeah. super into 65 plus or 40 plus, or this is the super amount you should have if you want to retire at this age. So, exactly, um, yeah. yeah, you're right. It is kind of yeah. a lumped together number. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I guess the same would, I, I guess you could make a similar argument to the income then that um, you do have That's a true. lot of young people who are probably working their first or second or third job in their 20s. Um, making minimum wage or just above that, and that might be contributing might to, that, it, yeah. to that median figure. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess you're right. All right, let's move on. Here's some interesting stuff. Um, you want to know the richest postcodes in Australia? <laughs> can I guess? I haven't looked at this. Okay, are, sure. Are you any can of guess. them? Are any of them in Victoria? Uh, one of them is yes. Uh, Turek. 
Yes. <laughs> okay, that's all I can that's do. That's number two. Okay. That's number two. So, coming in at number one and congratulations if you happen to live in one of these postcodes because chances are you're probably pretty wealthy. <laughs> um, so, the, the, uh, the highest taxable income for a postcode was 2028. So, New South Wales, Double Bay. There were 3,573 individuals in that postcode with the average taxable income of $202,541. Wow. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? However, what what you are saying, Turak, is not far behind postcode 3142. Turak, uh, that includes 10,054 people uh, with an average taxable income of $201,926. Wow. Where's Turak? I don't know. I haven't been there before, I don't think. Turak? Oh, man, I'm not good at geography. Don't ask me that question. (laughs) You you should have just answered by saying, oh, it's it's where all the rich people live. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. No, Um, but um, yeah, I mean- I imagine there'd be some pretty big mansions there. Yeah. Yeah. A few big houses. When it, whenever you see like a, a celebrity or someone is, is selling their house or they're buying a house and it's ridiculous, it's very often in, uh, in Turak, Turak. So, Right. Okay. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And then coming in number three, the postcode 2027, which is Darling Point, Edgecliff, um, had 6,000, I think 6,000 people. Man, that font is really small. Uh, 198,000 on average is what they earned. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So, they're the top three. How about- Let's talk about uh, top o- occupations. Mm. What do you think comes in at number one uh, for occupation? I'll be honest. I've, I already looked at it. So, this one I'll tell everybody. <laughs> number one, uh, the highest paid occupation uh, was a surgeon. So, there are 4,150 surgeons in Australia hmm. with the average taxable income of $394,000. Holy smokes. <laughs> big money. <laughs> big, big, big dollars. And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you go to you go to med school for, what, 10 years or something ridiculous and then you <laughs> yeah. have to be a, a, a surgical resident for another four years. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's no surprise. It's no surprise that they make a lot of money and it is a very, very high risk, high stress job. Yeah, true. Very true. Um not surprisingly, coming in second was anaesthetist. Hmm. They're on. <laughs> wow, they're actually very close. So surgeon was three hundred ninety four, anaesthetist three hundred eighty six. Wow. I suppose you <laughs> suppose you probably want an equally good anaesthetist as a <laughs> as what you have a surgeon. Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> almost just as many things can go wrong if you yeah. get. Uh, yeah, get the wrong dose. <laughs> Don't skimp out on the anaesthetist. <laughs> um, coming in number three, we've got internal medicine specialist. Mm. I'm not quite sure what that's about, about but um, 304,000 there. Uh, coming in number four, financial dealer, 275,000. Um, and fifth, psychiatrist at 235,000. Mm. So, there you go. Very there are some high paid jobs, but let's move on. So, this is really interesting. This is uh, a chart showing us how where where did Australia's uh, tax revenue predominantly come from, mm. uh, and it turns out that predominantly uh, the tax revenue came from individual income tax. So fifty one point two percent of tax revenue came from individual income tax. Wow. Uh, then next was company income tax at twenty one 
0.1%. Uh, then next, GST, 15.5%. Then after that, uh, Superfund Income Tax, 5.2%. And very, very small amounts of, uh, uh, of like fringe benefits tax um, and all those other kind of small taxes. Right. So, what do you make of this? 51% from income tax, individual income tax, 21% from corporate tax, and then 15.5% from GST. Mm. Is that what you expected? Um, I probably expected corporate tax to be a little bit of a bigger contributor, although you could probably put GST alongside company income tax because businesses True. are- um, I mean, I, a lot of businesses pass on the on the GST to the customer in higher prices, but um, it is the business at the end, of the end of the day that is paying that GST. So, you could kind of lump those together and then you're saying businesses are paying 37%. But yeah, I would have still expected um, a higher contribution from, um, from uh, companies. Um, but I would anticipate, and I haven't looked at the next couple of things, but I would guess that within that individual income tax, a significant portion of that is being paid by people who make a really high personal income. But I don't know. Mm. That is very that that is very interesting. I've got to um, I got to remember this <laughs> what this next chart was talking about. Yeah. So when it comes to individual income tax, um, so yeah, we'll talk about what. Uh, income categories earned the most amount of tax dollars for us. And interestingly, the highest um, bracket or the, how do I say it? The bracket that earned Australia the most tax revenue was the 90,000 to 180,000 uh, tax bracket, which earned 35.9% of our uh, income tax revenue. And then interestingly, so that was the highest, but then interestingly, the tax bracket 37,000 to 90,000 and also the highest tax bracket, 180,000 or more, earned about the same tax revenue, earned 30.9% of tax revenue and 31.5% of tax revenue respectively. So, I I actually find that pretty interesting is that um, across the three main uh, tax brackets, brackets, we earn about the same dollar amount of tax from each bracket. Yeah, that is interesting. So, that reflects not the individuals who make more money than say 180000 just the tax revenue generated in that bracket. Is that right? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that is kind of what I expected. So, what, 72 or 73% of the tax for individuals is being paid from the $90,000 bracket and above, which kind of makes sense. Um, but yeah, it is interesting that it's fairly evenly split across those brackets, 31%, 36 and then 31.5. Yeah. Yep. And I guess it's good um, that only 1.9% of our tax revenue is collected from people that earn less than $37,000. So, I guess that's what we want. That's, that's like why- that's a, a big deal in Australia is having, you know, our, our lower income tax rebates and our tax-free threshold, which a lot of places around the world don't have. So, yeah. I guess that's probably, I would imagine, what the government would want to see is that um, people that are earning a decent amount of money um, are contributing most to the tax revenue. Um, but, yeah, there you go. Very interesting. Anyway, that's 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 all- pretty much all that I've got to talk about for these stats. I just thought it was very interesting to get some context um, mm. into some of these taxation statistics and income statistics for Australia. 
Um, should we move on? Yeah. I want to hear about what you've got to talk about. Yeah. So, if we uh, jump over to the US now, uh, we could talk about something that came out uh, yesterday. And this isn't in regards to uh, US tax generally, but a specific leak that happened. Um, so, ProRepublica, which is a, 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 what do you call it? A news article, a news uh, publisher. Um, right. They basically reported on a leak from the IRS in the US um, that revealed that tax returns of 25 billionaires this week. So, um, wow. yeah, we, we've got some uh, leaked information on some of the wealthiest individuals, not only in the US, but in the world. And um, there's some interesting things to kind of dive into here. So, Basically, the information shows us the personal income tax returns for billionaires. So, that's kind of the first thing to think about when we're giving some of these numbers is, remember, a lot of these billionaires have the vast majority of their wealth in businesses. So, um, they're paying a very small amount of the, the tax burden that they end up paying is in individual tax. The vast majority of their wealth is in businesses that then go on and pay corporate taxes. So, we're just talking about personal income tax, but right. um, they provided some of the numbers. So, uh, Warren Buffett is one I'm sure we're all interested in. Uh, he reported uh, tax of, and I believe this was this must have been last year's tax return. I actually don't have it mm. in front of me, but um, Warren Buffett reported $125 million of personal income. And on that, right. he paid $23.7 million in tax. Uh, mm. Jeff Bezos reported $4.22 billion in personal <laughs> income tax. So he's, a, he's, he's, he's a big spender. He's, he's Holy make, smokes. Making a big income. I wonder if some of that, I wonder where that goes. Like, like, what's yeah, he? I don't know. Is, is he just having like, is he make up personal investments, or is this going into his his space business, or I don't know. I got no idea. I reckon he's just put it in a high interest savings account. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, yeah, that's a good question, man. Four point two two billion dollars of uh, income in a year. Jeez, it's a lot of money crazy, just to take crazy. personally. But it's such a it's such a difference to Warren Buffett. I mean, Warren Buffett, <laughs> yeah, 125 million is still insane. But 125 million is not 4.22 billion. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it is funny. I'm, I'm actually surprised Buffett took as much as that. And I I am so curious. Like, what is what? Like, why do you need that much? Why do you need yeah. to take that much as a as, as personal income, but I'm not mm. really sure. Um, but anyway, Jeff Bezos, he paid tax of just under a billion dollars um, of personal wow. income tax. Uh, Elon Musk was another interesting one. He reported $1.5 billion uh, in income and paid just under half a billion dollars in personal income tax. Um, right. And the article actually singled out Buffett. I mean, we were talking about that as like, wow, he's He's, he actually doesn't draw as much money out of his out of his investments to to, to yep. use personally, but the article actually singled him out for this and basically showed that well because he took the least amount of money out of his businesses as income, he then paid the smallest amount of personal income tax, and relative to his net worth, his actual wealth, he tech, he paid a, a, a tax rate of 0.1%. percent. Um, oh, right. So, they kind of singled him out in that way. Um, a quote from the article was, uh, surprisingly, given his public stance as an advocate of higher taxes for the rich, um, which I, I don't really Classic. think makes much sense. I mean, he's obviously advocating for the law to change, not that mm. he would personally choose to just pay more tax. I don't think yeah. anybody is is going to just go to the tax office and donate more money. Um, I think what he's talking about is changing the laws so that some of the loopholes that do exist, which I'll talk about in a little bit, um, are closed so that 
um, they can collect more tax revenue. Um, but mm. I mean, the article is really, really interesting. I, I Again, it's from ProPublica. Uh, um, and I highly recommend you go through it because there is a lot of interesting stats in there. But the core of the article is really making an argument for a wealth tax, basically. Um, yeah. Basically making the argument that it really doesn't make sense uh, to see for billionaires to be seeing tens of billions of dollars of increases in their wealth while paying a really small amount of personal income tax. So, of course, a, a billionaire is is seeing increases in their stock um, at a massive rate, particularly over the last few years. Um, but if they only draw a small personal um, salary or, or a small amount of money out of those investments from capital gains and such then they're mm. paying a really small income tax. Um, yeah. This is really, this is a very interesting argument. Um, the, the whole idea of a wealth tax. Mm. Because you're right, yeah, th- these these people, they're, they're not drawing a lot of income. Mm. But they, so they're not paying a lot of tax. Because it's income tax, that's what we pay. We pay income tax. Yeah. So, if you don't draw income, then you don't pay tax. And that was a little- uh, point that I had about that, uh, the, some of the statistics I got from that last story were from an ABC article. And the ABC article leads with, um, you know, a uh, quote like, where was it? 66 millionaires paid no tax in 2018, 2019. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost trying to trick people. And well, of course, you know, some of those millionaires- they have a very high net worth, uh, but they don't draw income. So, if they don't draw income, they're not paying income tax. Um, so, I think that's something interesting to remember. But it, it would be very, very interesting to play out how a wealth tax, how a net worth tax would would work. Because, mm. um, you know, the only reason that Elon Musk is- or Jeff Bezos is the world's richest man is because- of, he started Amazon and now Amazon has grown into this enormous company that's worth so much that that his stake in the business is worth an incredible amount. Um, but what would happen if, for example, he had to pay some sort of wealth tax, which meant that over time he had to sell out of his ownership of the company just to pay a wealth tax? What implications would that have? Um yeah, I don't know. I find it very interesting. Yeah, it it would be an interesting idea. I think I wouldn't be surprised to see if the US did a wealth tax um, over the next couple of years. I think there's a lot of support for it at the moment and it's not really surprising. I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of people around the world are not billionaires. So, um, yeah. it's kind of easy, to I think, to take a position to say, okay, well, why don't we just have a 1% wealth tax? Where And it's only mm. for billionaires. So, billionaires, mm. every year we calculate their wealth we just tax them one uh, 1% of that. So, I think it's really easy to make an argument for that. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it. Um, but I, I think he, here's my take on this. Um, yeah. And I mean, obviously I'm biased, but this is my kind of opinion on it. I think the article misses the point that, as you said, these people have created businesses, but these businesses that they own pay hundreds of billions of dollars of corporate income tax. So, all of their money is in these businesses that they own and they personally might not be drawing that much personal income, but they own a business which one of the expenses, one of the cash outlays of that business that they own 
is going to be corporate income tax. And Mm. one of the things the article draws to is that billionaire wealth is rising while their personal income tax is not. And that's different to the average person who's, as their income rises, the taxes rise. But the value of those businesses as they rise, what is driving that is the profitability of the business, right? Over the very long term, it's going to be how much profit the business produces. So over the very long term, the rise in the wealth of billionaires will be fairly equatable to the rise in corporate income tax that those businesses pay. So while they're not personally Mm. paying more taxes on their personal income uh, tax return, the businesses are seeing increases in tax. So I think that's an important point to to make, but um, I want to flip it as well and say that there is a very, very good argument that a lot of people can make for closing tax loopholes or confusing tax laws that make it easier for people with a lot of money to avoid tax um, that individuals just can't, whether it's because they don't have certain assets or whether it's just so confusing that it's easier for someone who can pay a lot of money for an accountant. I think Mm. there's um, a lot of good examples of that. And I wanted to draw to one example um, that I I think, did we speak about this last week on on the podcast? I I can't really remember where we spoke about it. Yeah, Um, we did talk about it together, but yeah, I'm not sure if it was on the podcast. I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, Anyway, I want to provide like a really I'll I'll try to provide a really good explanation of this situation. And it's in regards to Facebook's Australian business. And you might've seen an article for this if you were um, reading the news um, over the past week or so. Um, But basically, Facebook has a really, really interesting strategy for avoiding paying pretty much any tax in Australia. Um, Australia has, I mean, Australia has pretty fair corporate tax rates, I think, but they're not as comparable to some other places such as Singapore, Mm -hmm. for example. So, of course, Facebook is a big uh, multinational corporation they're going to do everything they can to reduce their tax burden. Um, So, what Facebook does is Facebook has two little businesses within their bigger business. They have two subsidiaries. One is in Singapore and one is in Australia. And the subsidiary in Australia, which would So, the subsidiary in Australia would be the one that would pay um, Australian tax if it made a profit, right? So, um, if that subsidiary was was selling advertiser space and making money on that, um, then they would be paying Australian tax because they're an Australian business. But what they do is they label that Australian subsidiary as a reseller of advertising space for the Singapore business. So, what the Australian business essentially does is it's kind of like a middleman between the advertisers buying advertising on Facebook and the business in Singapore. So, the Australian business- Right. Air quotes, big air quotes here, uh, buys advertising space from the Singapore business and then resells it to Australians who advertise on Facebook at the same price. So, maybe we can do- I'll do a little bit of, a little bit of an example uh. that's not related to advertising to make this, <laughs> more int- make this uh, a little bit easier to understand. So, you could imagine me and Brandon, we want to go into business and we want to sell. What do we want to sell? What's a physical product? Something easy. Jeez. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Basketballs. <laughs> basketballs. Yeah. We, love a good we, basketball. We, we want to sell basketballs, <laughs> but we realize that if we just sell them in Australia, we will be paying Australian corporate tax. And, and we notice that, oh, the Singapore corporate tax rates way better. So, Brandon goes and sets himself up in Singapore and sets up a little subsidiary over there. And I'm in Australia. And we set up our business in this way. I buy the basketballs from Brandon in Singapore. 
and then I sell yeah. them for the exact same price to Australians. And that way, right. me as a business in Australia have equal expenses to revenue and pay uh. no tax. And Brandon, who is selling the basketballs to me, has all of the revenue, which means he has all the profit and then he pays tax in Singapore. So, that's like a little- and also have. I also have 100% ownership in my Singapore business, by the way. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, you, you, you don't get, you don't <laughs> get I, it cut into and that, I don't, sorry. I don't get anything. <laughs> yeah, I own 100% of the Singapore business. You own 100% of the Australian business. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's perfectly fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, actually, that example. And wowee, that is just, <laughs> that is definitely, I mean, I mean- you, you can't argue that's got to be a tax loophole. That's crazy. That is just the simplest case of taking money that should be technically earned in Australia and just shoveling it overseas yeah. and not having to pay tax. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think when a lot of people think about tax loopholes, they think, well, why, why can't we just pass a law and just close the tax loophole? Like, why, why can't we just do that? But I don't, it's really not that easy because what I just described in many ways is kind of a, it's very much a normal business transaction if the two Facebook subsidiaries were not of the same company. Um, yeah. It, it's it's very much something that could happen, that a business could be reselling something and just doesn't make any money. So, it's yeah. not super easy or, or clear how you would close some of these tax uh, loopholes, but these are some of the crafty ways that businesses are able to avoid tax or move, not avoid tax, but basically move the the revenue Shifted. into a different country where the tax rate is mm. better. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I thought that would be an interesting interesting example to kind of close that story just to, to show um, how businesses mm. can can uh, avoid tax in Australia. <laughs> yeah, that, that was actually really interesting. Um, I learned, I didn't actually know that Facebook operated in that way. Um, so, that's very interesting. But yeah, I remember now we did talk about it briefly on the podcast because we were talking about uh, corporate tax rates. Uh, and I think you just quickly talked about uh, Facebook's situation, right? Um, but yeah, man, that is that is crazy. And and it brings us back to the to the argument. This is what we we're talking about on the podcast. I remember the argument of what do you as a country set your corporate tax rate at? Um, because the points we were raising whenever we spoke about this was surely as a government, your number one priority is that you just want from corporations you want to you want to collect the highest dollar amount of tax right because you you know if you if you set a corporate tax rate at whatever and you earn a couple billion dollars or you set the corporate tax rate at something different and you earn you know 50 billion dollars then obviously that second example is going to be better for you because mm. you've got $50 billion to do whatever you want with. So, it's it's a case of, and y- you hear a lot, a lot of a lot of people come out um, and, you know, protest and say, raise the corporate tax rate, raise the corporate tax rate. But it's an interesting situation of what do you set the corporate tax rate at to be, to be, to collect enough tax off of these companies, but also to be, I suppose, competitive enough as a country, as a tax rate, so that businesses, large business like a Facebook or a Google or something, they don't just leave your country for somewhere like Singapore that has a lower tax rate. Yeah. 
It's a very interesting argument. What, and obviously this must keep economists up at night all the time, what do you as a country set your corporate tax rate at to try and bring in, to try and set it at something that's fair, but also try and set it at something that's going to bring in the most tax revenue possible? Because that's really, as a country, what you want. You just want the most tax revenue because you get to spend more money in that case. Yeah. And and the thing is, we will never really know. You can't just look back in at the past and look at what tax rates were for different countries at, at different times and, and try and figure out what's the best like tax rate, because there's so many other factors that have an influence on this. I think one good example of this is in the US in the 60s, they had extremely high um, top tax brackets for individuals. Um, right. And they were bringing in a lot of tax revenue. However, it was also just after the Second World War and the US was one of the only countries doing a lot of producing of goods. So, there was kind okay. of, you know, it, it, you can look back at the past and be like, oh, there was higher tax brackets and they brought in more revenue and businesses were doing well. And it worked. And then there's yeah. periods where it was low and it worked or there's periods where it's high and it didn't work and low where it didn't work. And it's just sometimes it's going to be influenced by the tax bracket and sometimes it's going to be influenced by other factors that are just happening in, happening in the economy. Um, so, it's really difficult to know what is right and that's why there's so mm. much debate over it because no one yeah. has any good data, I think, <laughs> to indicate what is right and it kind of just ends up going back and forth a little bit, inching at a time. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Mm. I'd love to- Maybe if, if you- happen to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, like if you're an economist or something and and you have any insights on this kind of, on these issues, then let us know in the comments section of our, of our, of the YouTube version of the podcast. Um, We'd love to hear it because yeah, it seems like it is a very complicated issue. Um, But yeah, the, the rules have stood like this for so long that, you know, these, what we would call loopholes kind of do exist, even Mm. though when you actually boil it down and you look at Facebook's example, what you were saying before, exactly right. You know, this is kind of a, a standard set of business rules that could happen if, if it wasn't just Facebook selling to Facebook. If it was, you know, another company selling to, to Facebook Australia, then it, it would be like totally fine. But because it's the same company or s- subsidiaries of the same company, it's like, well, this is a bit weird. Yeah. Tell um, us about- man, um so complicated. Tell us about Chipotle. What's, uh, Chipotle, what's going on? A uh, quick bit of news. Uh, nothing, nothing groundbreaking. Uh, just an example of cost push inflation that we've been seeing over the last little while that we've been talking about with what Warren Buffett's been saying. Um, So, it just says here, uh, Chipotle hikes prices to cover the cost of raising wages. So, the article reads, I think, yeah, it's from CNBC, Chipotle Mexican Grill has hiked menu prices by roughly 4% to cover the cost of raising its workers' wages. <clears throat> Excuse me, man, my voice, I'm a little bit sick at the moment, so my voice has just been so off today, so I apologise. Um, Across the restaurant industry, chains such as Chipotle, Starbucks, and McDonald's have been increasing hourly pay for employees of company-owned locations in a bid to attract new workers and retain their current ones. Consumer demand has come roaring back for restaurant meals, but the workforce has been slower to return, pushing eateries to sweeten the deal. In May, the leisure and hospitality industries added 292,000 jobs, but employment in those fields is still down by 2.5 million compared with pre-pandemic levels, according to the Department of Labor. 
Uh, in May, Chipotle said it would raise hourly wages for its restaurant workers to reach an average of $15 per hour by the end of June. Company executives said um, at the Baird Global Consumer Technology and Services Conference <laughs> <laughs> that they would be passing along the price of raising pay to the consumers. Mm. Um, yeah, so there we go. Very interesting. What else does it say here? Um CEO Brian Nichol said the company prefers not to raise its prices, but the move made sense in this scenario. The timing of the price hikes coincides with rising ingredient costs across the restaurant industry as, supply- as suppliers grapple with the return of demand. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Um, just it's, There's not really too much to talk about here other than the fact that I guess this is another example of cost push inflation yeah. um, where either- the um, the raw materials get more expensive and the company decides to pass along the higher costs to end customers or the cost of labor, the cost of staffing uh, rises. And again, the company decides to pass on that, uh, that cost to the end consumer. Mm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that at the moment, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of it. And I find it interesting that they have decided to to pass that on to customers. I, I, I say that just because uh, Texas Roadhouse um, has a policy, basically, whenever they see increases from, from labor costs or from food costs, they always eat that cost and that they try their oh, okay. best not to pass on um, those expe- expenses to the customer and change that experience. But um, yeah, I mean, a 4% hike is not small. Um that's a mm. big increase. And uh, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a nice little, well, maybe it's not nice, but it's, it's an example of, uh, of what happens when you go from being shut down to all of a sudden there being a huge demand um, and a shortage of uh, many things that they need to, to run a business, such as labor mm. and, and, uh, and ingredients in food. So, very, very interesting. Yeah. If you think about it, I guess if there is, as the article talks about, this massive returning demand of, you know, Chipotle, for example, of Chipotle meals, but the workforce can't keep up, then it makes sense that you should be able to pass on the costs to your consumers without having too much, too many negative effects um, because the demand is just so high. Unless, you know, mm. the 4% rise was just a deal breaker, which I don't think it would be like it is, it is considerable considering it's across everything. Um, and you know, if, if you saw a 4% price hike and their sales dropped by you know, 40%, <laughs> then I'm sure that they would be backtracking pretty quickly, but it looks as though it's something that, um, they will be able to get away with yeah. because it seems like the demand for Chipotle is so high. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Similar thing is kind of happening with Thor Industries as well, who reported their Q3 2021 results. Okay. So, um, we can kind of relate that to this. Um, yeah. Thor Industries, of course, is the biggest RV manufacturer in the US. Um, and they're also facing supply chain issues. So, um, just to give you some of their numbers in terms of their business, first of all, <laughs> they're still continuing to see this massive demand for RVs as a lot of Americans are deciding to to basically holiday within the US over the next few uh, years yeah. compa- comparatively to being able to go overseas. Um, revenue for the quarter was up 105.7% um, uh, to reach uh, $3.46 billion. Earnings per share came in at $3.29, up 665% year over year, what? which is just ridiculous. Um 
And to be fair, Crazy. this comparison is for the one quarter where they were shut down for about a month. Manufacturing was actually shut down. So, oh. that makes that comparison uh, look a lot nicer than it actually is. But regardless, <laughs> that quarter is a record quarter for the company. Um, so, very, very impressive. More interestingly, order backlog um, expanded to $14.32 billion, which was up 550% year over year. Um, so, basically, during the quarter, they received orders from dealerships of about $8 billion worth of RVs, but they could only build $3.5 billion. So, they couldn't even make half of them during the quarter. Wow. Um, and that has been very similar to the previous quarter where, again, they were only able to make about half as much as the demand that came in. And the most right. interesting thing that I found in this report was management said that most of their backlog had already been sold at retail. So, so what normally happens is Thor Industries is a manufacturer and they sell to dealers who buy it, put it on their lot and then sell it at retail. But at the moment, because there is so much demand, dealerships are taking orders for RVs they don't have yet and then buying them from Thor Industries. So, not only wow. is that 14 point. $14 billion, not only is a lot of it sold to dealers already, it's already sold at retail. <laughs> like the customers have already come and gone, which is insane. Um, that is a backlog, all right. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, $14 billion, I mean, if they could do that, so you, typically for them to make an RV, it, it takes less than a month. So, um, they can do it within the same quarter. Um, but if they had, if they didn't have supply uh, constraints or, or production constraints and they did that in a single quarter, they would almost double their best year in a single quarter. <laughs> <laughs> which Whoa. is uh, which is really kind of demonstrates how much demand there really is um, for their products. Um, but within all of that, there has been a massive shortage of raw materials, as you would expect um, for, from mm. that much demand. So things like aluminium and steel, um, those sorts of things are uh, in massive shortage. And um, Thor has also been able to pass on the cost, the the higher cost of not being able to get some of those materials or, or having a shortage mm -hmm. of those materials to the customer because demand is so high. So similar to to what Chipotle is doing in that they're passing on that as inflation to to customers. Yeah, man, that is a uh, that is a good position to be in though for Thor. Man, those numbers are seriously impressive. That is just insane. It kind of reminds that reminds me a little bit of uh, of Tesla. You know, Tesla have something like half a million Cybertruck orders, mm. and they haven't even built the factory for it yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. I was going to say something else, but I forgot something about. Da, 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 da. No, it's gone. It'll come back to me. But yeah, wow, that's pretty impressive. You still hold Thor, don't you? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Great. You've held that one for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I've held that one since the beginning of 2018. So, uh, yeah, three years yeah. now. Yeah, long time. Yeah, yeah. really good company. I, yeah, I remember what I was going to say now. It's just, uh, it's interesting that when we're looking at the lockdown and when we look at different industries, how we just assume, we kind of put a blanket over, you know, travel and we kind of say, yeah, travel is just going to get destroyed. And for the large part, it has, you know, like uh, airlines and um, and anything to do with tourism. You know, if you offer some sort of tourist experience, then you've just been destroyed. Uh, but one select pocket, I actually would have said, you know, with all the lockdowns that were happening, I would have said originally, no, nah, RVs are going to get smashed as well. Yeah. But it makes sense, actually, because the number one thing that the lockdown has 
caused is no international air travel. It makes sense that people are wanting to go on holidays still, but obviously they just have to do it in their own country. So it does make sense, actually, that RVs are benefiting from such severe, you know, lockdown conditions over the past 12 months or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it does make sense. I, I definitely didn't expect that at first. And I mean, 2020, that financial year, which included a significant amount of shutdown for their factories, um, was the second biggest year on record, which is kind of crazy. And this year is definitely going to be, the, I mean, this year in the first nine months, they've already passed their record year. So they have a whole quarter left and they've, <laughs> they've already passed it. So they're going to, they're going to, sm- and this is an industry that grows at four or 5% per year normally. They're probably going to grow mm. 25 to 35% above their record year, which is um, just ridiculous um, comparatively wow, to what the industry normally does. So, yeah. Very impressive. Very impressive. How's the stock going? Did the stock respond favorably? I imagine it would have. No, it didn't actually. Um, the stock really? is still trading. I mean, it's it's trading at about $120 per share. Um, in okay. 2018, when they had that record year, uh, it was trading at 155 So, they're, oh. they're going to do this year revenue and probably profit as well. That's 25 to 35% higher than their record year, but the stock is trading <laughs> at about 60% of the value or 30% below, 40% below um, where wow. it was. So whether that gap's going to be closed towards the end of the financial year, I don't know, or- You must feel a little ripped off. <laughs> a little bit, but- It's like, what more What more does Thor have to do? Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it is what it is, but I mean, if yeah. the stock goes down more, then obviously that gives me an opportunity to buy more of a really good company. So, um, hey, not too, that's the spirit. too phased about it, but yes, I was surprised to see that the stock didn't yeah. explode on this. Yeah. Um, all right, should we move? I just want to cover this story really quickly because um, it just caught my eye. Biden revokes and replaces Trump's executive orders banning TikTok. Oh. <laughs> did you see this? I, I did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, just just as a, a quick, you know, refresher, uh, says under the previous administration, TikTok was going to be banned unless it was, uh, this is in, in America, I should say, unless it was sold to an American company. Um, this led Walmart and Microsoft to team up and try and buy TikTok, but ultimately TikTok went with Oracle. However, nothing ever really went through. Um, so, yeah, great, great legislation, guys. <laughs> um, and users are still able to freely access TikTok in America. Uh, but anyway- President Joe Biden signed an executive order on Wednesday that sets criteria for the government to evaluate the risk of apps connected to foreign adversaries, a move with implications for Chinese-owned sites like TikTok and WeChat. Biden revoked and replaced the three executive orders by then-President Donald Trump that sought to ban transactions with TikTok and WeChat by American businesses. One of the orders also sought to ban TikTok, resulting in a prolonged court battle. TikTok still remains uh, remains available and popular in the US. Here we go. So, Biden's new order will direct the Commerce Department to review apps tied to foreign adversaries and lays out what it should consider an unacceptable risk, according to a White House fact sheet. There you go. It's just down to a White House fact sheet. (laughs) (laughs) Checklist. He just, yeah, he just got his squad together and wrote down three little tick boxes and then handed it over to the Commerce Department. Selling data to foreign country. Uh, Tick. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, dear. Uh, it says here, that includes criteria for evaluating transactions with software apps tied to a foreign adversary. The order also directs the Commerce Department to work with other agencies to come up with recommendations to protect US consumer data from foreign adversaries and requires the department to recommend further executive actions and legislation to address the risks. Interesting that they, uh, they, they classify China as a foreign adversary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there you go. It's, it seems like uh, kind of backtracking, but kind of not. Um, but, mm. yeah, I just don't see. Banning TikTok was never going to happen. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I anyway. don't know too much to, to think about this. Maybe we'll see something over the next year or so if they do their investigation and and find anything that's particularly interesting. But um, mm. yeah, I, I, yeah I, I'm not sure I have, have too much to, to say on yeah, uh, this. Yeah. The, the thing that I just, that came up in my mind when I read this, it's just like, <laughs> it's like, surely you have better things to do than to ban an app, a, a social media app about short videos <laughs> that people scroll through. Surely you have better things to do than try and figure out whether this poses a risk to your nation. It's like- does does is the data like what data is TikTok collecting, and is it really that important that you need to ban TikTok? I mean, people are just sitting there scrolling through people doing quirky dances to trendy songs. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, I, I don't. Don't you want to like? Don't you want to focus more on the f- building of nuclear weapons by other countries or something like I that? I mean, yeah, that does that does yeah. sound more important, Brandon. But uh, no, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I don't know what data. We must crack down on cat videos, <laughs> Hamish. No, I don't know what data TikTok collects. Though. I mean, they obviously collect some personal data. Um, based on when you set up your account, whether that's just a phone number and yeah. a name or a birthday or, or what that is. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not really, uh, I, I don't really know that much about um, security and apps and, yeah. and how data is collected and that sort of thing. It's not something I'm super familiar with, but um, clearly, yeah. Yeah. Clearly they collect enough data that the White House, Joe Biden needs to write a fact sheet. Hmm. <laughs> All right, let's do some Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly gee. Uh, where should we go for this Q&A? Um, I don't know. To be honest, I forgot to read through the Q&A questions. Yeah, I'll do. So, I'm, I'm going in blind. We've got a, we've got a two-part, uh, two-part question here. So, we'll go through this one. Um, uh, a couple yeah. of questions. Uh, do you know why the numbers tend to differ on a variety of financial websites? For example, Yahoo mm. versus QuickFS. Yeah, we'll start there. Yeah, they do tend to differ, don't they? Yeah. I think it's because um, a few, like most numbers would be the same, but a few numbers, I'm trying to think of an example. Can you think of an example um, where there's there's like two kind of accepted ways for, you know, mm. calculating the same number yeah. and one website just uses one way of calculating it and another website oh, uses okay. another way. Yeah. So, I mean, something like return on invested capital could be calculated yeah, with a net income on the top line or EBIT um, on the top line is, is common. The other thing, I think another reason why on top of that is also yeah. probably because they're, these websites are scraping data from annual reports and, and quarterly reports. And sometimes yeah, they point. can incorrectly scrape something like total equity versus shareholder equity so there can right. be a difference between those two if the business owns subsidiary uh, owns parts of other businesses whereas the the software just scraping that data off the website might incorrectly grab the wrong number so i think it comes down to both of those things one is some numbers will be calculated differently than others um and then just 
errors in the software that they're using to to scrape data, I think is probably right. most common. But ultimately, the biggest safeguard is to run the numbers in something like QuickFS and do it because that allows you to do it quite quickly, but then check all the numbers, check them all in the annual reports that actually come from the company. Um, and if those numbers are wrong, right. well, the company's committing fraud and that's just unlucky. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's the second part of the, When analyzing businesses, does tangible book value or book value hold more weight? Or is it largely dependent on the business you're analyzing? What's the difference there? Getting rid of intangibles. Yeah. So, things like goodwill, which is created when a business yeah. pays a premium for a, a business, uh, another business, if they're making an acquisition. So, they pay a premium above the value of the assets. Um, that becomes this intangible value called goodwill. And it's supposed to represent, um, I guess, the the reason why the business was willing to pay more than the mm. physical assets of that business. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think tangible book value is probably a better- it's safer. A safer illustration of of what the company could sell all of their assets for and then pay down their debts and what would be left over, whereas intangible assets are, are very commonly um, misvalued. Um, because, yeah. I mean, just to go back on Goodwill, the premium that a, one business pays for another business has absolutely nothing to do what they could to do with what they could sell that business to if they yeah. needed to get money, um, which is, uh, it, it's kind of insane that that sits on the balance sheet. But yeah, I think mm. tangible book value is a little bit more safe, a little bit more conservative. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, there's definitely, there's definitely some value to intangible assets, but you just, you just have to be careful when you're reading it. Um, because yeah, you're right. Sometimes if the company is desperate to get more money or needs to sell it and they're distressed, they, they're not going to be able to sell it for what they believe it's worth. Um, but you, like the the brand of McDonald's or the yeah. brand of Apple, that's definitely worth something. Yeah. It's just you got to be careful with what is the value of that brand. And especially, I think this is like a little accounting hack, smaller companies love to just pump the intangibles and make them make themselves look better. So, you just have to be careful. If you see like intangibles and goodwill just being like this huge number, then you just got to put a question mark there, don't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it's most common with businesses that do a lot of acquisitions because you'll see a lot of goodwill on the balance sheet. True. Um, just be careful um, when you're doing your equity calculation. A lot of that equity, equity could be just the fact that the business paid a lot for other businesses, <laughs> which yeah, exactly. uh, may not actually reflect too much value if it's a bad management team. So, yeah. Yeah. Should I read this one to you? Uh, yeah. I haven't, I haven't yes. scouted through it. Yes. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. Uh, can't, literally can't wait for every episode each week. Oh, oh, thank, thank you very you. much. I love getting comments like yeah. that. That's nice. <laughs> it's it's just I, I love the community of the podcast. Yeah, it's just so it's just so positive. I don't know. I just think over time on YouTube, you just as you scale up, there's the comments section. Most people are fine, but there's just increasing frequency of just annoying comments. Yeah, but I really I love the podcast because it's just everybody is so you know so happy about mm. it. I don't know. It's just a good- we got a good community going. Let's keep it going. Yeah, definitely do. 
Um, sorry, back to the question. Um, I'm curious about the takeaway from you two on this famous Peter Lynch phrase, selling winners to buy losers is like cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. But in the next situation, let's say we have a winner, 250% overvalued by all fundamentals and a loser looking very promising with a business with high margin uh, profits, growing, etc. And the stock is 50% undervalued. How do you not sell your winner to bet on this loser? That's a good that question. That is a really good question. And I'm actually glad that we get the opportunity to kind of explain that uh, a little bit more in depth because we brushed over that really quickly. I think it was last week or whenever we whenever we spoke about mm. it. Um, so, in terms of that phrase, I think what it's trying to get you to avoid doing is just simply selling stocks that are going up in your portfolio and just simply buying stocks that are going down in your portfolio. It's something that I hear a lot of people doing that whenever a stock goes down, it's on sale. They want to buy more of that. And if a stock goes up, it's becoming too much of a big position in your portfolio. You want to trim that position. That is not what you want to do because it takes no critical analysis of the underlying business to to just sell the winners and to buy the losers. But within that, of course, within your portfolio, there will be there could be a business that gets massively overvalued uh, compared to the underlying business. And uh, at the same time, there could be a stock that you own a little bit of or you don't own at all that is really undervalued. And I think that's a perfectly fine situation. It's actually very rational to look at the two opportunities and to move money into the one that is a far better opportunity. Um, the only yep. ca- like sort of side thing to that is you would prefer to put cash into an undervalued business than to sell an overvalued business and buy use that money to buy the undervalued one, right? So, if you have cash around, um, I would still be in the position to use the cash to buy the undervalued business and hold on to a great company, even if it is overvalued. Um, but if there's a massive difference between the return you can get out of two stocks, one looks like it's going to have a really crappy return because the stock's gone up so much and it's overvalued. And the other one is looking like it's got a really high return. Then it's very it's a rational thing to do to to sell that overvalued one and, and use that money to buy the undervalued one. Yeah, I think the the angle I was going to take when answering this is is what you just touched on there about uh, about the return because yeah, you could have two great businesses and you're heavily invested in one, but it's also two hundred and fifty percent overvalued, um, and then there's another one that looks very promising and it's fifty percent undervalued, but you haven't bought in. It was like okay, well I don't really want to. I, I love the business that's performing really well right now that I've made a lot of money on. <clears throat> but if I run a discounted cash flow and I see, you know, something like, okay, this is so overvalued that if the business grows at 20% annually, then in 10 years, it's going to, you know, it's going to be fairly valued. Then it's just like, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Maybe I want to, I want to look at the one that's undervalued. So, I think you can take a look uh, from that return point of view. I mean, you want to put your money where you're going to get the best return. But yeah, I think what you say about that that phrase, selling winners and buy, to buy losers, is definitely getting you out of that mindset of just, um, if you've made a profit, just clear it and put it into a stock that you own that's gone down a lot because that might not be the best idea. I mean, it could be the best the best idea could be just hold that high performing stock and just get out just get out of the one that's gone down even though you're going to take a big l um you just don't know but yeah uh, i think looking from that future uh return point of view will, will help in that situation definitely 
All right. I think we'll wrap it up there for today. Thanks everyone for tuning in as always. And uh, thanks everyone who uh, submitted some questions. And uh, if you want to submit a question or a news topic for us to talk about, then you can by heading over to the YouTube version of the podcast at youtube.com forward slash the young investors podcast. Just click on the latest episode, scroll down to the comment section and leave your questions or news topics as a comment down there. Thanks to ShareSite for sponsoring as always. Again, if you want to get four months off a yearly subscription or you just want to sign up to a free plan and use that for as long as you want, then head over to ShareSite.com forward slash young investors. Thanks, Brandon, for joining me as always. Yeah. And we will be back. That's good. Good Next fun. week for another episode. See you later, guys. All right. See you guys.